Welcome to episode 110 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, talk about their career and how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. And it, as Tarek says, this is our 110th 110. episode, which I always, I know I, I say this every so often on the podcast, but I can't quite believe we've had that many Actually, brilliant authors, yeah, and no, totally. and stuff. Not a bad uh, episode come among on them. And speak to us two idiots. <laughs> <laughs> they must, they they must, must be hating their agents. What the hell are they doing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Coming on chat to us. Um, but no, there is genuinely a great back catalogue of people. So um, please do check it out if you haven't before, because there's bound to be some. Uh, authors or screenwriters etc that you are interested in but this week we're speaking to another best-selling author yeah this week we're chatting with jane shemelt who uh was a gp and then she undertook a diploma in creative writing and then a master's in creative writing because obviously she wanted to get in that writing world and she became uh, a best-selling author of psychological suspense novels her debut was a rich and judy pick became the fastest selling debut novel of 2014 that's quite exciting yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you want as a debut yeah, author, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we've had a few authors on the podcast that have talked about attending writing courses and mm-hmm. the importance of those. You know, and it, not everyone does a writing course and not everyone needs to do a writing course. But I think Jane goes into quite a bit of detail about how that helped her and why, you know, the fa- even taking that step meant that it was a serious thing that she was doing in terms of her writing. It allowed her and you know, her family to take it seriously and things like that, which can be important in and of itself, I think. You're not just someone scratching away on a notebook in, in the back yeah, room yeah. getting interrupted all the time. It's one of these things where I think everyone always says that everyone who hasn't done it, there's plenty of folk who haven't done it and have made successes, but everyone that has done it, no one's ever said they wish you hadn't. You know, so I think it's something that if you're able to do it, it's not a bad thing to do. It will yeah, probably give you, a, give you a, yeah. a help. A helping hand i think but if you can't do it don't stress too much about it yeah absolutely so um yeah it's a great episode so we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest but for now on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. 
And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. It, did you always want to be a writer? Because I know you came to a career as a writer quite quite late on. In... Yes. Um, it's actually quite difficult to know what are wants in a way and what... Uh what you determine i think i think i mean when i look right back to when i was a child we had this nanny who would bring great rolls of paper because her brother-in-law worked in a local printing press and so we had huge rolls of unprinted on newspaper my sisters drew on them and i told stories and i can remember still that feeling of power and freedom in making up stories and that kind of continued throughout my school year and I was far the best I don't mean the best of the class but my personal best was reading and writing and I loved my English A-level I still remember it Um, but so really if I'd gone to what I wanted and was best at I would have read English and nearly did but um, when I was 18 I went off to do well, it was VSO in those days, in a mission centre in the highlands of what was then Rhodesia. And um, I had quite a lot to do with the hospital then. And there were hardly any doctors to go round. And that seemed, it seemed to me, well, you know, this, this is a profession where you could actually be quite useful. Mm-hmm. I came from a medical family, so there was that as well. And I thought, well, I can go back to writing. I didn't realise how long it would take. <laughs> <laughs> You know, by the time you do your medical degree, and then I met my husband there, got married, we had five kids, I got into a career in general practice. And so it wasn't till really space began to open up as my, my two girls left home, they went to university, and my eldest said, come on, mum, you, you know, you really want to write. Don't you? I didn't know how she knew, because I didn't think I talked about it very much. And... Um, so with that sort of extra space, I was still being a doctor, I went to do a diploma course at, at Bristol Uni. And that was just on uh, Tuesday nights. And they became the best nights of the week. And I just couldn't believe it. After the years of talking about hypertension and how to treat kidney disease, you were suddenly talking about authors and writing and how to structure your work and poetry and Oh, it was just brilliant. So at the end of that year, I had to make a decision about leaving medicine and going to do an MA, which I had the opportunity of. So that was really the crunch time. And you chose to do the MA in the end? I absolutely did. Yes, I I did. And um, it just just felt like swimming with the tide, you know, and I felt I'd done medicine 
for quite a long time. My husband's a neurosurgeon, so, you know, the family is still doing its bit in that way. <laughs> um, no, I just, I just felt I really wanted to. And that's when I began to take it seriously. Uh, had, had you completely um, abstained from, from writing during, during your medical career? And was it only when you took that writing course that you really got back into it? Or had you been writing things throughout? I ha- do you know what? I hadn't really because there wasn't time. Um, you know, it was quite difficult to carve time to go and do medicine, mm-hmm. you know, with five little ones. And um, the one thing I did do, which is an absolute, as far as I'm concerned, a prerequisite, I read. I never, ever stopped reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kids and I would go to a bookshop as a kind of activity on a rainy day. So they'd pull the books out and I'd quickly get some books myself and no matter how late at night I always read and I think that is what kind of kept the flame alive so when I began to write it felt extremely natural in fact you know there were stories just kind of waiting to be mm-hmm. to come out and it, 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 it I won't say it's easy because it's never easy but it felt extremely natural yeah. and for for people listening who are wondering about whether or not to do a master's in a creative writing course of, or something similar you know what what kind of stuff did you do in that course and and and, and is it something you would recommend other people doing as well yes I absolutely would I'm a little bit wary of saying it's certainly not the only pass mm-hmm. you know and um it's quite expensive and it's very hard work but what it does do especially for somebody like me it allows you to feel okay this is my professional at least this is what I'm going to do now and the Mm. family recognize it so you've got this kind of dedicated space in which to learn the craft and it was an opportunity to learn the craft you do modules you choose your modules one of them I chose was the writer and place actually which was wonderful because it allowed me to realize you know how much of a character places in novels and I love writing about place and I love reading about place as well in novels. So that was good. We had groups, tutorial groups, and you fed back work. And that was useful because it began the process of accepting feedback, which can mm-hmm. be quite tricky, you yeah. can be quite possessive about your novel. And not inevitably, but by and large, if somebody, and especially if more than one person thinks something should change, it should change. You know, it actually often makes the novel stronger. Mm. And we had brilliant tutors. And that's where I wrote the first draft of the novel that became Daughter. And it was also how, at the end of the course, we were, um, everybody was invited to submit a chapter of their first draft, and that was bound in an anthology and sent to agents. Oh, cool. Agents get an awful lot of submissions. I mean, they get 70,000 submissions. Yeah. Sorry if that sounds a bit of putting to... <laughs> but, you know, they do. And so if you do an MA, it kind of helps a bit. And certainly they, you know, got all collated all these different agents and we met them in foils in London and we chatted like mad and my agent approached me and that was my agent. Oh, and wow. then, yeah, it was lucky. And then a few months later, she got me a deal, publishing deal. So that was lucky. That was lucky. It's certainly possible to do it another way. But 
for me at my stage with the children used to be used to me being on tap and you know it just allowed me to live a different life it's it's interesting because we have had other guests that have done similar writing courses and um they also found certainly i think a few of them that I'm thinking of also found the agents via the course almost. Yeah. So, so the common approach is to say, do your three chapters, your synopsis, your query letter and post that and sort of hope to get picked up by the agent. But it does seem that these courses can, it's by no means a guarantee, clearly, you still need to be able to, to write well and everything, but they, they, they can help with maybe making the right contacts and yeah. getting your stuff before the right people to then hopefully make a decision on that at that stage. I think that's right. I mean, first of all, you have a chance to really polish your draft because of the feedback mm-hmm. and the tutors who are published writers themselves. So they understand, you know, perhaps what is being looked for more than you might, certainly more than I would have done mm-hmm. writing on my own. So that was important. You actually do meet agents throughout the year as well. Well, we did at Bathspar, they came down for evening talks and um, you can do this there's this wonderful book called you probably know writer artists and writers yearbook yeah. mm-hmm. and you can look up and see what agents want the kind of book you're writing whether it's sci-fi or you know what or, or non-fiction yeah. even whatever genre you're writing in you can find somebody who might be interested but you know it is it's tricky and even if you've done the ma you know, rejection is quite common. Um, and you can be lucky as I was because somebody's looking perhaps for something specific that by chance you are supplied. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes it can be extremely specific, you know. So um, and, it's and, not and, the and, only way, but it's helpful. I'm sorry. No, uh, I was just going to say, you're, that, that first book that you wrote there, Daughter, um, yeah. you wrote that during your MA, is that, is that what you're right? Yes. And and how was how was the process of writing that? You know, was it because obviously you've written four books since four or five books since then. Um, but how was it writing the book whilst doing the course? Was it quite helpful to have the course in the background to help push you through writer's block or or, or, or any of that stuff? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I didn't get writer's block actually because I was just ah, <laughs> <laughs> to write. I mean, I got I had writer's block. You know, it's not been easy since. I, but that first, just you know, I felt as I was in heaven. It wasn't easy, but I had my tutorial group. My, I mean, I was I, I, my colleagues, and they'd say, "Oh, we want to find out what's happening." So that was hugely incentivizing mm. to to leave it on a cliffhanger and to write for them. And the other thing that was useful, I mean, I I started writing a book really inspired by my patients. I wanted to, in a way, pay homage to the grace with which people carry loss. Almost everybody you see when you're a GP has a loss of some kind. It may not be obvious. It might just be the loss of use or the loss of health in some subtle way. But people are so brave and you don't normally see that so I wanted to write about that and it started with this grieving woman <laughs> my quite blunt tutor said well look Jane this is just one long dock walk I'm so bored and I <laughs> realized about plot I really I hadn't realized I, I was so naive about 
structure of books, even though I've read them all my life, I hadn't really analysed what it was that drew me through books. I didn't think I even read particularly plotty books, but I thought, oh, yes, I've got to meet people. So I think I read Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and worked out that that was, you know, very compelling, very well written. And so, and, and also at that point I was watching The Killing, I don't know if you, that was the first Candy Noir, and they brilliantly combined stillness of the grieving parents with a kind of urgency of plot, trying to find out who, where the girl was and who'd killed her. I can't quite remember whether they knew she was dead early, but they were trying to find out who killed her and where she was, and so that was very urgent. And then it was also still. So I kind of borrowed that because I did want to write about the grieving process, but I also wanted people not to think I was on one long dog walk, which is what we did a lot. So I had this, I went back in time to around the time of her abduction. So people would want to turn the pages. And I interspersed that with this illness of grief. Um, So I can't think why. Oh yeah. So, so that was how I did it. And, it was a learning process. I wouldn't have really noticed how boring it was unless I'd been told in no uncertain terms. And did it take you a while to find your voice, as they say? Did it take, or or did that was that something that came quite naturally to you? Your your style of writing. I think when I look back to bits of writing I did on the diploma course, actually, it's not that dissimilar. I always struggle with the concept of voice. I never really know what it is, except that I can tell, say, which of my friends have written which. You know, you can tell. But it's not something that I think you do deliberately. You know, it just, it kind of emerges. And if I start to think about it too hard, I kind of wobble, you know, like riding a bike. I think that's definitely true because I think if, if, you know, I'm sure we've all read books where someone is clearly trying to, put on it's almost like a bad actor in a way you know the, <laughs> yeah. they're they're over performing and or trying to put something there that isn't actually them and it kind yes. of comes across when you're reading it yeah um but like you say a a good author you will recognize it yes. even if you can't quite define it you'll recognize yes. it as their work i think yes yes that's right and no when when it came out um it was a pretty big success it was a rich and judy pick it was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish and the Edgar Awards. And am I right in saying it was the best-selling uh, debut novel of 2014? I mean, yeah. that must have been... What a satisfying launch that is. That's, that's incredible. I know. I mean, sorry, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like that. But, I mean, the thing that... Actually, I didn't really know. I know now, but at the time, okay, I wasn't yeah. social yeah. media. But, I mean, social media wasn't as big... It, it's mm. grown enormously in the you know last five, ten years. I wasn't on Twitter. I did start to be, I think, at the end of that phrase. So I didn't really know. I saw it was in the Times bestseller list, but I it didn't really impact. You know, like a lot of things that change your life, you don't really realise that's what's happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And the race was on to write the next book, and so I didn't. I mean, it was lovely and meeting with Judy was a high point and you know there were lots of things that were very nice about it but you know a lot of the time I was just in the kitchen or in at the table writing you know Mm. nothing huge seemed to change at that point but it was a wonderful launch into my career as a writer and so that helped 
both me and my family take me seriously. <laughs> and and you've you've talked about about your ideas and where they came from. And you mentioned that the idea for your first book was was partly from the patients that you'd worked with and you, and that you'd met. And I think I read maybe on your website you talk about you getting your ideas. You know, drowning lesson was from a journey you taken through Africa. How far we fall was inspired partly by your husband's work as a neurosurgeon. So, in your in your approach to 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 writing and to idea generating, is it just a case of having your eyes open and anything can kickstart it? And as opposed to sitting down with a newspaper and saying, "I'm going to hunt for a unsolved oh, murder or something," which I'm going to find interesting. Absolutely. I mean, often these ideas are stored a long way back with the patient. I didn't really even know that this patient had stuck with me. But when I was a medical student, I met a young psychotic lad. I used to hang around a lot. um, And he came in through casualty late one night, this young man. um, Manic, incredibly manic. He was, he'd actually taken cannabis, a lot of cannabis, and that can do that. And so... His eyes were glittering. He was totally wired. And he actually said, I feel like an aeroplane going down the runway, about to take off. And I I absolutely remember that because I recognised that because I felt the same at times. Because if you get very... I, I used to stay up all night, not that infrequently, to study and to kind of be around the wards and so on. And because... I came from an arts background, so science didn't come naturally. So I kind of overcompensated. Anyway, um, when you're very sleepless, you can sort of go a bit manic yourself. I don't know if you've experienced that, but, you know, you get these weird feelings of, you know, being quite wired. So I felt terrific kinship with this guy. I can't pretend that those little kind of, you know, wingtips of mania that touch me were anything like the serious illness that, people get when they're truly psychotic which is horrifying and difficult but all the same I felt then and I still feel we're all on some sort of baseline you know and how important it is to recognize that and not to other people with very serious mental illnesses as is still happening anyway he sat at the back of my mind for years and this last most recent book the patient was a chance to really developed the idea of somebody who um, has a serious mental illness and yet is very attractive, very lovable, very deserving of everything that everybody else has in their lives. And I, he was the character, the central character that I started with for this story. Um, and then other bits of, I, I mean, as happened to me, a big life-changing event when I was around 50, well, the the woman GP in my story has a big, you know, she falls for this patient. So that's a big life-changing event, a second chance, if you like. And that I was kind of picking up, resonated with a lot of women. The chance before it's too late, whether it's to have an affair or to start writing or, you know, have another kind of life. People are interested in that. So that was something I sort of brought in quite deliberately to run alongside the idea of this patient and then there was the setting and that I've always wanted to write about where I grew up which was um Salisbury actually where the book is set which is Salisbury Cathedral Close um 
because it was a place of um, very interesting contrast, fantastically beautiful, you know, famously beautiful, but also quite disconcerting. It's a great big cathedral. It sounds like, for you, it's always characters and setting that come first then, and then you will work the plot around these these characters and setting that, that that you want to write about is that is that right yes I, I i i think so there isn't a script i mean there isn't mm-hmm. a way yeah. that i always do it i don't think but in this i knew i wanted to write a love story because i'd never written one and um not a straightforward one there was, there was usually sort of rather messed up and <laughs> i thought this was a chance to write about you know because i i realized that when i read a story or watch a film very often, however deep and clever and cutting edge, I'm actually rooting for the love story. I want those that couple to get together some at some fundamental level. I mean, it's not the only interesting thing, but it is interesting. We're kind of, I think we're quite hardwired to for relationships to work somehow. Anyway, so I wanted to write about a relationship, but I, I you're right. I hadn't the plot developed. As I went along, yeah, and some of the twists didn't happen till really quite late. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I did want to ask about that as well. What's your process when it comes to writing? I mean, it sounds like do you, you know, in terms of planning stuff, do you do you? I'm getting the impression you don't sit down and, and write out a massive plan of what's going to happen when, um, or, you know, is it more like a kind of rough idea of where you want to go and maybe a, an idea of an ending, or do you have a pretty good kind of aim that you know that you want to reach as you're writing? Um, I think it's a mixture of all those things. I mean, you know, there's that pre-writing stage where you these ideas come at you um, or you revive them from some deep place. And then writing, I usually start just doing a spray diagram because I find that quite creative. You put your character, if that's what you're starting with, in the centre of the page and lines, whatever that makes you think about so you've got quite a densely covered piece of paper, a bit very untidy. And then I usually start writing, say, about five chapters, feeling my way into the story, and then I make a chapter outline. Because I think it's quite helpful to have a sort of path mapped out. So if you're going for a walk, you mm-hmm. know, you've got your map and you know where you're going, but it's not rigid. Mm-hmm. So as you go, I think... For me, it works best if I allow myself to think, oh, wait a minute, I know what I can do at this point, or I can have another character. I think I'd be very bored and quite sort of constrained if I knew I had to do what I'd set out to do. So I think it's a bit of both. It's nice to have a loose structure that is flexible. And yeah. d- does that mean that are you someone that revises as you go, or, or do you get to the end of the first draft, you know, try and push through to the end and then? revise it after that and sort of clean it up before you you show it to anyone i think that would be ideal i kind of can't resist (laughs) fiddling with it as i go but i my aim is to get it out like a lump of clay that you Mm -hmm. then shape afterwards because i do find writing you know it was different when i wrote my first book and now sitting down to write especially that first draft, sometimes it's really grinding out the words, isn't it? It's tough. 
it's tough and it doesn't always just write it well it doesn't ever really write itself so I just think right I'm going to give myself permission to write badly somebody told me that and I mean there's a limit you can't write so badly that you can't recognize any words <laughs> which I can do <laughs> so I try to write so that I can understand what I've written but not get too bogged down because that is can be very disheartening and you just stay you know swirling around in the same little stagnant pool so I try yeah. to write it and then so much gets done on the rewrite yeah we've spoken to some people who even They've said that they'll just, if they're struggling with a particular part, they'll just put sort of in square brackets. Yes. Know, something happens here and then they'll jump to the next bit and then they try it on <laughs> the rewrite. They'll try and join it all together in a more yes. cohesive way. Absolutely. Whatever works. Yeah. I, I absolutely think that. And um, I mean, rewriting, there's a magic in rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. I mean, I, you know, when you say rewrite it, it starts from the beginning, but I go through and. Yeah. And you deepen characters and you the plot gets more interesting and connections. And then the very last bit is once I stayed up for 72 hours, completely bonkers. Because at that last minute of, I think it was just, the book was actually due in after having had its edits. I began to see things, it makes me sound mad, but I began to see connections that I hadn't seen before, you know, page 100. Oh gosh, that links with page six. I didn't realise that played out in that way and so you kind of shone that up a little bit more and that's yeah. a very exciting phase but you know it comes at the very end yeah I completely agree for me the the stuff I enjoy the most is the rewriting when it's yeah. and every every pass you do it's kind of getting closer and closer to that nebulous idea you had of it in, in your head and it's not yes. just that pile of flaming vomit that you yes. wrote out the first time yeah it's 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 I know a lot of people hate the re- rewriting phase, but for me that's a, I love going back and then the hard part is the first draft, and then it's it's fun just going back and tweaking it and improving it and improving it. And so, do you just rush it? Rush yeah, it? I, I I try and yeah just rush it with first draft, um, and and I feel like yeah first draft's probably getting better each time, but it's it's still it's still not great and it still needs a lot of work, but. But I know I'm always like, well, I'll fix that later. I'll fix it, later. and I, I have to write. I can't. I'm. I'm not able to do the whole, you know, fill in this. Do this whole scene later. I have to write it in order. I can't jump around in, no, in the narrative. Some people can. There's some people almost jigsaw their work. Yeah, they? totally. Yeah. I, I don't know how they do that. I. I, I that's not. A, there's no right or wrong, of course. But I know I wouldn't really do that. I get very muddled myself if I write like my first book, writing in split, and I've just written and submitted the draft of the book that's coming after the patient. And that was split time. And that can get terribly confusing. <laughs> you, know, you kind of lose yourself. Yeah. Um, you write, so, sorry, you carry on. No, so when you write something like that, where you've got a split time kind of narrative thing, would you write one whole narrative strand by itself and then another, or would you jump back and forth? With I jump two? back, of course. Okay. Because um, it very much depends what you reveal. Because if you're trying to make it cliffhangery. Yeah, you could easily reveal in the future narrative strand what happened in the past. Yeah, okay. And so you don't really know where you are until you you know you write a bit of future, then you write a bit of past. But you don't go. You've got to avoid the future next time saying what happened in the past, and and that is only really possible, I think, when you do them in parallel. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah, 
Yeah, although we have had, I can't remember who it was, that said, someone said, they, they do exactly that for those reasons, because as yeah. you say, otherwise, but on the, on the redraft, or one stage of the redrafting process, they will, they will look only at each timeline to make sure it is yes. consistent. Uh, yeah. And then look at the other timeline, sort of. A thing. Yes, I think I probably do that. I do everything really. Yes, I'm sure I do that because you can forget. Mm-hmm. I can forget, and so you've got to pick up. You know, if you're talking about in my last in the patient, I had a dog. <laughs> in both narrative, you know, does the patient have two narrative strands? Well, yes. Well, it has two places more than two narrative strands, actually. And in one place, I had a little dog. And I forgot about the dog completely. So I had to go back and put the dog in. <laughs> and I just left him out. And, you know, there are people who would really mind that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. What happened to the dog, you know? <laughs> and have, have, you, have you found it? Obviously, when you're writing your first book, albeit you were on the course, but there was no... Um, there was there was no hard deadline for you to say right this has to be done but obviously yeah. once you're picked up and and you have a deal and stuff there there becomes that pressure i suppose of a deadline some people find it helpful some people don't i mean how have you found that change i actually although i kind of moan about it a bit i i actually do find it helpful um because otherwise you can almost like drown in time mhm and I've worked harder in the last three months than I have all year, really. And by working that hard, the book, you know, I began to see things. The book smartened up a lot. Um, I think I'm quite glad I've got my my next book done because when a book comes out, you know, and it's lovely to have opportunities like this to talk and you know if you're really worrying about a deadline for another book while you're doing this that Mm -hmm. that is tricky yeah so yeah now um we've talked about your new book quite a lot but we should actually why don't you tell us a bit more about what the actual book's about and so it's out this month april 2022 uh so why don't you tell us a little bit about what it's about what people can expect it's April twenty eighth. Eighth, twenty eighth. Twenty eighth. Sorry, twenty eighth of April. Sorry. Attracted by some cars. The way I'm going bicycle. <laughs> um, well, it's it's the story of a GP who lives a very affluent middle class kind of life in an affluent middle class kind of town, which is Salisbury. She's settled in her work and in her marriage. She has a grown daughter and very widely respected and responsible kind of person and overtly happy. Although actually her life does feel very samey to her and she remembers the past when she was a child and the world seemed very open and now here she is in this kind of tunnel-like life. Um... And she, one evening, while returning notes to the practice, she meets a suicidal young man, a bit younger than her, a patient, a Frenchman, who's an architect who's actually moving to Salisbury, though she doesn't know it at the time. She thinks it's just a one-off encounter. And she has the time, because it's after hours, to really listen to him. And that makes a very big difference to him. 
um, as it does, because as a GP, you don't really have time to listen as you'd like to in a helpful way. Um, and what happens after she meets him again and an affair starts? And that has huge consequences, far more than you might think. Um, some of the affair plays out in Provence and some in Salisbury. Provence is where he has a house. Um, and unbeknownst to her, she's stalked and a whole chain of events start that culminate in murder. Um, and I suppose the story really, as I've talked about, is is about mental health and second chances. And also by setting it in Salisbury, the kind of shocking effect of something like a murder on a small town community. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into it in more depth. I'm always a bit no, worried. No. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want any spoilers, but I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good summary of that. And yeah, as you say, that's out on, on the 28th of April. Well, before we move on, from the process, I did want to just ask one more thing, which was, are you someone that you do you use beta readers or do you um, show it to anyone or is it just sent to your agent or editor and, and you just work on it from there? Uh, well, I was lucky enough in the MA, we made a little mm. writing group. And so we let each other see out. Not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody will read the work. And I used to send it out chapter by chapter, but actually that I think it's best to send it out when you finish because people didn't always understand where it was going and would ask questions that the answers would come later. Mm-hmm. So, so they have helped a lot. Um, but I may be getting to the point where I'm happy just to write it and send it in. But I do think having, sometimes people say surprising things, notice things that are so obvious actually afterwards. Yeah. You totally missed it. So I'm always very grateful if people will. And I've got an MA tutor as well who will sometimes read my work and that's just brilliant. And how do you know when you've got this kind of feedback from people and you know, you're getting feedback from your editor and your agent and stuff and they're throwing up stuff, how do you decide what stuff to listen to and what stuff to see. You know, the stuff comes up, you think, um, no, I think you've got that wrong on this stuff. Is there a point when you think if two or three people fl- flag it up, you think, okay, there's something there, or do you try and stick to your guns a bit more? I tend to be quite open to feedback. I'm quite self-critical. So if somebody says something's wrong, I take it quite seriously. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, Sometimes I think, well, no, I know that character wouldn't say that or would yeah. say that or something. Sometimes it's something I feel very sure about. Mm-hmm. But um, quite a lot of the time, it's just very useful. And especially, as you say, if two or three people say something that isn't working, I'll certainly try that. And then the final arbiter is my editor. And... I would have to be very, very sure of my myself to ignore my editor. I don't tend to. I mean, I think editors have a lot of experience and also will know what works in the market. Yeah. Which yeah. another consideration really, isn't it? Yeah, there's that kind of balance between you want to write the, your book your way, but you also want to sell the book exactly. and make money off it. And it's that kind of, 
yeah, how, each side has to have a bit of a of a play, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, I, I think I, I can't remember who it was that said it was it Neil Gaiman or someone said, or Stephen King said, you know, if people, you know, if people, if multiple people are telling you something's wrong with your novel or, or there's something not working, then you should listen to them. But if they yeah. tell you what the answer is. Don't listen to them. <laughs> it's that, for you to solve the solve yeah. it, but they're yes. pointing out what the issue is. Yeah, and that it's quite nice doing that actually, because often when you think of your way round whatever problem, you think of several other things as well, mm-hmm. which helps the story that you hadn't even thought about. And yeah, and often they'll, they'll flag up things that's maybe not. It's kind of what Mark was saying, I suppose. It's not necessarily that show. What well, the flag up is not the actual problem, but it's almost like they're flagging up something is wrong with the. With something the, isn't working. Something's not working, yeah, and you have to go deep into the exactly. plot or the structure of it to 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 to, to fix it, and it's um it's maybe manifests itself in a way that that they are spotting, but the actual root of the problems something something else, yeah. and I suppose it's it's knowing what what to fix and 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 what to leave in, and something we've talked about before is is when do you know something is is ready you know how many drafts do you tend to do before you think i'm done now and and, and when do you leave it is it when the deadline comes in or could you could you do redrafts forever i think it's probably i mean something happens and you think this is done and i can't that sounds a bit magical but it may be to do with just tiredness <laughs> but i think that comes a point but it takes a lot more work than I ever realised to get to that point. It's, you know, you, I think I must read books about a hundred times. I mean, it takes a long time, but then you think, it, it's like, I don't know if you've got children, and I don't know if they've ever yeah. had nits, but my people <laughs> did, and you have to brush their hair with a, you know, white brush, and then you keep going, keep going, until you get these knit combs with tiny little, you know, narrow divides between the teeth. So you get out every last little knit. <laughs> and, or perhaps that's not the right analogy. Perhaps it's just a child with very tangly hair. So you brush it and then, you know, brush it again and again and again. And then you're right down to the tiny little tangles. And then by the time you've brushed the tangles out, you know, you've got a head of smooth hair. And you know that it's smooth. You feel that it's smooth. And I think that's the same with writing. Um, although often when I read my book, I almost can't bear to read my books again because I see ways in which I could make it better. Yeah. yeah. And that's quite painful. Yeah. And uh, your, before we go, your third novel, How Far We Fall, I think has been optioned for TV. Um, are you able to tell us what's happening with that? I, I think that's stalled. Um, We had a Scottish writer and it was going ahead, but then it was a question of finance and it didn't get made. I mean, the patient, I have to say, has been picked up by a Hollywood agent who's very interested in that. Oh, cool. So, yeah, but I've learnt, you know. (laughs) No, don't get too excited. (laughs) You cannot get excited. I mean, things can look extremely promising. Yeah, yeah not work so you know yeah so many moving parts and so many things have to line up but yeah yeah um so what's next then you've got the patient coming out on the 28th of april this month uh and what what's after that well i've written the one after that i say grandly i mean i've written the (laughs) draft of the one after that so you know i mean i've submitted it nice and um 
I struggle to find a way to encapsulate it, but I think it's it, it's a story um, about it's a story that opens on the island of Paxos, and it is about really the shocking behaviour of a group of adolescent holiday guests of a very wealthy English holiday maker um, against the young girl who is part of the Greek family who look after them. And that has got this, that leads to devastating consequences. And it's a story of hubri and revenge, very unexpected revenge, and it spans 20 years. Nice, sounds really good. So that's that's that story. I, enjoy, I did enjoy writing it. It's the darkest book I've written, but there was something quite satisfying in that, I must say. Cool. Excellent. I'm well, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, did you did you go there for some research? I that? absolutely did. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Oh, crikey. I've got so many kind of on the go. Um the last, the, the one of the most memorable ones was Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which is an excellent, excellent book. And at the same time as that, I've been reading Lamplighters by Emma Stonex. Nice. That, yeah. Excellent. Um, really kind of magical and creepy and just beautifully written. And The High House by Jesse Greengrass. Um, I'm also reading, actually I read it in the bathroom, a, a book called Assembly by Natasha Brown. And that, oh, that's an amazing book. It's so elegant. Um, so, yes, that's my answer to that. I could go nice. on. <laughs> uh, what about the last film that you watched? Um, the last really good film I watched was The Power of the Dog. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've still to watch that. That's on my list. Oh, still oh, it's to watch. amazing. Very powerful. Very sparse. I was told to read the book first that I might... Help with the no. enjoyment of the film. No, I didn't. I didn't even know there was a book. I have oh to yeah, okay. apparently it's based on the because I've read a lot of folks saying it seems to be a real love or hate it type movie, and people a lot of folks are saying it's very slow and stuff. But someone I talked to, I think it was maybe my mum, said that she read the book first and helped to understand what was going on with the film. Yes. Although I often wonder with things like that, like if I watch a film of a book that I've liked, and I'm watching the film with other people, I. I can almost feel myself being tense. Will they understand? What's, you know, <laughs> I want to explain why this is. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It, but in fact, it's fine. It works as a film entirely on its own. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to, to she, a good film. Yeah, yeah she's exactly. done by itself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've read The English Patient and seen the film, but yeah. they're both excellent in in very different ways, really. Um, I mean, the book is a very profound experience. I, I, I quite often read the book I read again and again to work out how he does this sort of silky thing with time Mm -hmm. you know he hasn't got strands it's just a continuous weaving and that is really brilliant you don't well you do see that in the film but it's much more straightforward but Mm -hmm. the film was magical as well so yeah I they were two very different experiences but I didn't I must get the part because there were bits that I would like explained in the power of the dog I mean I remember um I read the gone girl and then which I loved And then I saw the film version not long afterwards. And I remember watching the film version and I was just thinking, I'm actually a little bit bored because I kind of, it almost felt like it was so close to the book 
and it hadn't done anything different. Now, that's not a criticism of the film, you know, but... Yeah, but you knew what was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. so much of that book, is, of the, the joy of that book is the twists and stuff. I mean, yeah, you know exactly. where it's going. It, it's not the same... You know, some films have like something like a like Arrival. You watch that, and you know the twist. But because the twist impacts the film in such a big way that it makes it enjoyable even more the second time when you know what's happening. But Gonger was different, and I, I kind of thought, I kind of wish I hadn't read the book for this one. Yes, I mean, The Power of the Dog isn't really about plot or twists. I mean, mm. there are there is a surprising thing that happens in the end, and it it you know there are, but it's not twisty. It's just you go deeper and deeper and deeper into character and play okay. again. And it it's not fast, but yeah, it's yeah. magnificent. Excellent. Nice. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to watch and, it. And then uh, the final question, uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Gosh. Um, well, I'm watching, well, I, I watched Stanley Tucci's Going Around Italy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is just brilliant because it's more than a cookery show. It was the yeah. sort of culture yeah. of Italy, and I think I'm going to set my next book in Italy. <laughs> Do some research, yeah, definitely. It's going to be about food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just lovely. And then I'm watching something which is really more my husband's and son's thing. Um, the slow horses. That oh thing. yeah. Oh, that's been awesome. Yeah. yeah. It is very good. It's very. It's literally dark and gloomy. But I'm I'm in, and it's got Gary Oldman. What's his mm. name? Gary Oldman. Oldman, yes. And he's just so magnificent. I mean, he's yeah. just such a good actor. So that is just for the joy of the brilliance of his acting. And then I'm also watching something called um, The Split. Oh yeah, uh-huh. I'm I'm enjoying. I mean, that's more light-hearted in a way but I love the interplay between these three sisters and the sort of psychology of that and I think that's very well handled so those are the three things I'm, I'm watching maybe. nice um and the the very very last thing we do is a super quick fire either or oh, and there's no right answers apart from one I always say but the um based on your on your bookshelf behind you I think I know what the answer with that one would be but we'll start <laughs> off with uh gone girl or girl with a dragon tattoo Oh, Girl with a... Well, I think they're both very good. I do. But you had to pick one. Okay, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, because it's you know, very helpful to me at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TV or cinema? Because of COVID, I'd probably say TV. And <laughs> so many astoundingly good things. I mean, yes. yes right. uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Actually, both. At the moment, I'm getting up early because I'm trying to swim every day. So that makes me tired. So I think I'd say, okay. <laughs> but when I get near a deadline, it's kind of merges. <laughs> <laughs> um, music or no music when you're writing? No music, just silence. Yeah, I can't understand how people can. <laughs> and the last one, real book or ebook? Real book. Real book. Yeah, that's, that's good, fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, thanks very much to Jane for coming on the podcast. I thought it was a really interesting chat. And I thought what she was saying about the first draft, you know, using it almost like a lump of clay that you then form with the rewriting into the finished article is, is, it's not everyone's approach. We've spoken to authors that Mm -hmm. really take time over that first draft and want a fairly clean first draft. But a lot of people seem to 
view getting to the end of that first draft as the first big step in in forming the novel i think yeah. you're one of those people yeah i definitely um yeah it's it, it's it, it's hard because they great the first draft is the worst for me for sure and you kind of want to get down there i think letting yourself know that it's okay to write something that's crap the first draft is is good because if, if it's easy to get hung up on trying to make trying to get that completely perfect first time and it just takes you you get bogged down in it and you get nowhere yeah. and it's it's not helpful i think that's right i think sometimes yeah give yourself permission to write badly as, as yeah, jane said yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice phrase actually like yeah. that yeah yeah um so yeah so thanks very much to jane uh, the patient is now out so we'll put a link in the podcast description so you can pick that up um and uh, we have another great guest next week yeah, next week we're chatting with Ed McDonald, who is a fantasy writer, and his Raven's Mark trilogy was a real smash hit when that came out. Yep. And his latest book is uh, Daughter of Redwinter, which is coming out at the end of this month, and uh, very excited for that. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting chat that we had with Ed. I, um, as as list, regular listeners will know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, fantasy. Right up um, Marco Street, this stuff. Exactly, yeah. I, it's weird. I, went many many years not reading any fantasy but then but you're back just recently i'm right back into it <laughs> it's back feet. baby <laughs> jumped right back in <laughs> no it is the raven's mark trilogy was great and um i've, I've read daughter of Wedwinter winter as well which is different but also really uh, great as well so but it was really good speaking to ed about writing those things but also he's someone that's on twitter that often gives out really good advice yeah, to aspiring authors yeah. and we speak to him about that and some of that advice as well so um yeah if you're an aspiring writer if you're a fan of fantasy then please do tune in for next week's episode because it's a good one now if you enjoyed this week's episode as ever please do like and subscribe or follow and leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app because all of that helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast and if you want to get in touch, then you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later. 